electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner. On day 137 of the coronavirus crisis, the nation's former vaccine chief tonight with an ominous warning for the country. 2020 could be the darkest winter in modern history. The doctor charged with finding a vaccine for the virus, demoted by the White House, speaks out. Our window of opportunity is closing. Tonight, his plan. And what the CDC is proposing. Plus, new fears this country is in for a shortage of the drug many think will stop the virus. And we need to be six feet apart. This two table, one and two, have to go. Rearranging America. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner. It is good to have you with us on this Thursday night after the Dow snapped three straight days of losses. Let's get our first look this evening at futures right now. It is early, of course, and they are modestly lower across the board. Stocks, though, shrugging off more dismal unemployment numbers and erasing early day losses today. The Dow rose more than 375 points after being down more than 450 early on. Financials were the best performing sector for a change. American Express rising more than 7 percent. Late this afternoon, the New York Stock Exchange said it will reopen the trading floor to some of its brokers on May 26. Today in Washington, ousted vaccine official Rick Bright taking center stage, testifying before the House Health Subcommittee, warning the government's current response to the coronavirus could lead to even deadlier months ahead. We are facing a highly transmissible and deadly virus, which not only claims lives, but also disrupts the very foundations of our society. The American healthcare system is being taxed to the limit. Our economy is spiraling downward, and our population is being paralyzed by fear, stemming from a lack of a coordinated response and a dearth of accurate, clear communication about the path forward. I fear the pandemic will get worse and be prolonged. There will be likely a resurgence of COVID-19 this fall. It will be greatly compounded by the challenges of seasonal influenza. Without better planning, 2020 could be the darkest winter in modern history. First and foremost, we need to be truthful with the American people. Americans deserve the truth. The truth must be based on science. There is no master coordinated plan on how to respond to this outbreak. We don't have a strategy or plan in place that identifies each of those critical components, and we don't have a designated agency that is sourcing those critical components and coming up with a strategy to make sure that we have those supplies when we need them. 
CBC contributor Dr. Scott Gottlieb with us once again. He is the former head of the FDA, of course. Dr. Gottlieb, welcome back. The explosive testimony from Dr. Bright is where we begin tonight. What was your biggest takeaway today? Well, look, I think Rick's right insofar as we face challenges ahead with this pathogen. It's not going away. This is likely to become endemic. Um, I think the tools we're going to have in the fall are very different in terms of dealing with this. We're going to know how to contain outbreaks in the fall, hopefully. We'll have much better testing in place, certainly. We'll have one or more drugs available to us. Eventually, we'll have a vaccine probably towards later in the fall that we'll be able to use. But this is going to circulate. And as this collides with flu season, we're likely to face challenges trying to differentiate coronavirus from flu. Um, And this is more contagious than the flu. So if this is left unchecked, which it won't be, but if it's left unchecked, Um, We could face another epidemic heading into the fall. Now, I think we're going to be in a much better shape to try to grapple with that and prevent it. But those are the risks. Do we need a a more master and coordinated plan, as Dr. Bright suggested today? Up till now, most of the critical decision making, Dr. Gottlieb, has been left, as we know, to the states. Do we need a more uh, master coordinated plan from the federal government? Well, look, I think at this point, the states have done a good job, and I think it's likely to remain a state-led effort. And I think the states are in a much better position going into the fall to know what they need. What we're likely to see in the fall is rolling outbreaks. I don't think that we're going to have another national epidemic. I hope not. I think we're in a position to try to contain spread. But we're likely to see rolling outbreaks where cities become epidemic or states have large outbreaks. And then it becomes incumbent upon local officials to implement measures to try to control those outbreaks. And so it's not necessarily a national response. It's going to be a state-by-state response. My one concern is that no state wants to go first. And so if you're a city that has an outbreak, do you want to be the city that shuts down your airport or your economy to try to contain spread within your city to to, um, create safety for the nation as a whole? And we saw with Seattle, Seattle was very reluctant to take those measures when they should have. San Francisco was really the first city to implement those tough measures. And so hopefully by the fall, governors and mayors will be in a position to take more aggressive action earlier to try to contain spread if they're the ones that have that outbreak. We're finally getting the CDC reopening guidelines. We've been waiting for those, uh, Dr. Gottlieb, to deal with schools and workplaces, camps, uh, child care, mass transit, bars and restaurants. How strictly should states be following those? Well, they're they're greatly scaled back in terms of what we we were expecting and what the draft documents said that were leaked, unfortunately, to The Washington Post. But we got to look at those drafts because the reporters got a hold of them. And what was essentially released were some of the figures, if you will, in those documents, some of the flow charts. And so it's not very specific guidances to businesses. And I've been talking to a lot of business leaders who are now developing their own guidelines on their return to work, what they plan to do in the workplace And what they're generating is far more specific, far more granular, more detailed, and frankly, more aggressive than what's outlined in those flowcharts that CDC put out tonight. It's not clear if this represents the totality of what CDC is going to put out. But if it does, this is pretty much top line guidance. Um, What the businesses are going to do is going to go well beyond this. You, You use the words greatly scaled back. Does that put more people at risk, Dr. Gottlieb? Well, it's it's not as helpful as it could be. I mean, I think what you want from public health officials is more detailed guidance that provides more granularity, more specificity to businesses. Businesses now need to make decisions about how to implement hygiene in the workplace, how to implement social distancing, um, how to how to create a staggered workforce so that you're not bringing people together in groups, how to implement testing in the work site if you want to or make it available. 
the guidances that, that were put out tonight, really the flow charts that were put out tonight, all make those recommendations. They say businesses should engage these activities, but they don't provide a lot of specificity on how to do that. Now, they link back to information that's already on the CDC website, so that's a little bit more granular, but it's not specific to the workplace. And so businesses now need to go beyond these flow charts. These flow charts are sort of top line. These are the things you should be thinking about. Now businesses need to implement more detailed plans on how to achieve these goals. Sounds like business is going to be left to itself, much like the states were, to try and figure this out on their own, including how to deal with sending children back to school, which New York's Governor Cuomo today said he's unsure whether schools will be able to open in September. Do you think they will? I think it's too early to tell. Look, it's going to depend on what July and August look like. And if we head into July and August um, and the infection rate does come down, there's a seasonal effect here. We believe there will be a seasonal effect. We don't know how powerful it will be. But if the infection rate does come down heading into July and August, and we're coming off of August where there's not a lot of background infection, I think there's going to be an attempt to reopen schools in the fall. Now, schools may take certain measures to try to reduce the risk. They may stagger classes. They may have students work from home one or two days a week. Um, They're going to try to create physical separation. They may try to expand their campus. So there's things schools are going to do. But I think they'll attempt to reopen schools. And then we'll have to see how this progresses. If we have outbreaks around the country um, in, in certain regions, Um, in certain cities, in certain states, I think you're going to see rolling school closures. Hopefully we don't get to the point where there's a national epidemic again and you see simultaneous closures across the whole country. But I think we're likely to see rolling closures in different parts of the country as you have local infection in a city or a state. We're seeing China, South Korea, Hong Kong, all facing new clusters tonight as they reopen even more. Is that a preview, Dr. Gottlieb, of what may happen here as we open up more states? We're going to have, as we reopen now, we're going to have more infection. Now, if you look at the data, the data is actually encouraging. Hospitalizations are coming down. Cases are coming down, even as we're testing more. The positivity rate's coming down. So the national trend actually looks encouraging right now. But if you, but if you follow the states that are reopening, I would expect cases are going to go up and hospitalizations will go up. That's what we expected all along. So that shouldn't surprise us. You don't want them to go up a lot. You want to continue to monitor that. And that's why we want to reopen slowly so you can implement mitigation steps to prevent more outbreaks. But heading into the fall, we're going to have cases. We're going to have a spread of this virus. It's not going away. This is a coronavirus. It's highly contagious. It's more contagious than the flu. This is going to be with us. Um, It's going to be with us until we get a vaccine. Frankly, it's going to be with us until after we get a vaccine. It's going to become probably an endemic virus that circulates each year. Now, over time, it will become far less fearsome. We'll have drugs that treat it. We'll have immunity to it. Many of us will have been exposed. We'll have a vaccine. So it's going to become something that we can deal with much more effectively. But this is going to probably become a virus that circulates around the globe on an annual basis. Let's talk about how we may deal with that. Dr. Gottlieb, you stand with me uh, just for a second here tonight. A warning over the supply of the potentially life-saving drug remdesivir. CNBC's pharma reporter Meg Terrell is with Dr. Brian Abrams. He is the co-head of biotech equity research, RBC Capital Markets. Meg, good evening. Hi, Scott and Brian. It's great to have you joining us. I've been following your research now for more than a decade, and I believe this is your first TV appearance. So thank you for making it with us. Uh, But we're talking with you about a a topic that is a little scary. You know, the first drug that has shown any benefit in treating COVID-19, and there might not be enough. What does your modeling show?
I'm wondering if he can hear us, if he can hit his microphone button, maybe yes. that'll help. Yeah, sorry oh, about that. So, uh, so yeah, so Gilead has about one and a half million vials of remdesivir available. Uh, about 40% of that looks like it's going to be allocated to the U.S. That's not going to be nearly enough based on our calculations. Uh, with the updates recently from HHS around allocation, it looks like the initial remdesivir supply is going to cover only about half the patients who need it this month, with up to 300,000 patients eligible for the drug through the summer, not able to receive it uh, until production begins to catch up to demand this fall. Now, I know Gilead is working really hard to try and address this. It's not a trivial drug to produce. It takes time. It takes specific raw materials. Uh, they've just signed several license, agreement with gener- license agreements with generic manufacturers to help ramp up production. And we would expect more to become available globally in the coming months on a willing basis. Well, Brian, tell us your assessment of the strength of the data. You know, when Dr. Fauci uh, has been talking about it more recently, he's been calling the benefit pretty modest, and he compared it to the earliest days of treating HIV, um, which is sort of an implication that, you know, it's just the first drug. It's not a a be-all, end-all. How would you assess the data and your expectation that as this drug potentially gets combined with other drugs as it's being tested now, will it show more benefit with them? Yeah, absolutely. So this this gets to the question of not only how well does the drug actually work, but how should it be used? And uh, as you know, we some mixed data to the data. The strongest data was a large study conducted at NIH where remdesivir shortened the recovery time for severely affected patients from about 15 to 11 days and trended towards lowering the death rate modestly. We've also seen some less conclusive data for the drug coming out of China uh, where it, it did not reach its primary endpoint, but there did look like there were some Uh, positive signals there. Now, there are several studies that are going to be reading out over the next several weeks. And I think that's really going to help tell us exactly how well this drug works, where it might fit in, uh, and who could benefit most from it. And that's going to be important to guide its usage, uh, given the short supply. Now, in terms of your uh, your question about combinations, um, I think that's a really important point. Uh, So there's several different approaches that companies looking for corona treatments are taking. Uh, The first of the direct-acting antivirals, these are drugs that work by preventing the virus uh, from replicating and spreading throughout the body uh, and from infecting our cells. And that's the category that remdesivir falls into. Uh, Another main category are the anti-inflammatories or immune modulators. Uh, And a last category are the antibody treatments that are designed to mimic the body's own immunity. Uh, And those can be either derived from patients who've recovered from the virus or synthetically. There's definitely potential for different drugs in different categories to be used in combination. Uh, A lot more we still need to learn about how these drugs can best be used Uh, Just as an example, it was thought that the antiviral drugs were only going to work well in the early stages of disease before the immune reaction starts to cause lung damage. But it turns out that that might be a misnomer. So still a lot left to learn, but combinations, including remdesivir, are certainly feasible. Right. Well, Brian, we really appreciate the time you took with us tonight, and we look forward to continuing to follow your research on this uh, as you've been really out in front of the pack in terms of modeling uh, how much we'll be able to access this drug. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Scott. All right, Meg, appreciate it very much. Thank you for that interview. Dr. Gottlieb, how concerned should we be about a possible remdesivir shortage? Well, we're not going to have as much of the drug as we want. Um, The NIH study looked at this drug in the setting of severe patients and showed a benefit in that setting. But ideally, you'd probably want to move this drug earlier. You'd want to use it more in the frontline setting. And that's how doctors are going to want to use it, so that when a patient who has coronavirus 
who has comorbidities, has conditions that would predict that they might have a worse outcome, comes into the emergency room. This is a drug you might want to hang right in the emergency room and start the patient on it right away. We're not going to have enough supply um, heading into the fall to do that. So there's not going to be as much drug as we would want. I think later on in the fall, towards the end of the year, more supplies coming online, my understanding is, and I think supply is going to build all through the fall. Gilead's done a good job of, of um, changing the manufacturing process here, making it more efficient. It used to be a nine-month process. They've got it down to six months. They've reduced the number of steps. They've sourced more raw material for this. And so I think you're going to see supply ramp all through the summer into the fall. But ideally, this is a drug you might want to use on a bigger cohort of patients than what's going to be available. Dr. Gottlieb, I want you to stay with me again because a remdesivir shortage not the only cause for concern tonight. Despite all of the ways you can now get tested for COVID-19, not all of those tests apparently are accurate. Meg, you have the latest now on the state of testing around this country. That's right, Scott. And as testing has ramped up, modeling groups are still saying we're not doing enough. In fact, one really prominent group from Harvard saying testing levels need to be at least three times higher per day than we're currently doing, uh, around 900,000 tests. Right now, as you can see in the last seven days, we've been averaging uh, around 300,000 tests per day. They also are taking a look at this on a state-by-state basis. And data from the COVID tracking project show on a per capita basis, uh, states like New York, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, they're doing Doing the most. But if you look at the Harvard Group's modeling numbers, uh, they show there are several states that are still not at the threshold they need to be based on the size of their outbreaks, about 14 states and Washington, D.C., uh, not hitting that testing level they need to be testing. Uh, and also um, showing a percent positive rate of the tests getting returned uh, of more than 10 percent, which the WHO has suggested means they're potentially missing infections. And of course, as testing is expanding, there are also concerns you mentioned about the test's accuracy. Three different kinds of tests on the market in the United States all have potential possibilities for false negatives. For the most common tests called PCR tests, that rate is estimated to be about 5 to 30 percent. For antibody tests, which test for prior infection, uh, that can go as high as 10 percent under the FDA's tightened guidelines. And for the newest kind of tests, those are antigen tests, the FDA says that negative results do not rule out infection. And in fact, one test getting a lot of uh, attention around that this week is Abbott's ID Now test, as there was an NYU study that just came out suggesting that can miss a third half of positive samples. Uh, however, people are coming out saying that might not be the best analysis. And Abbott, in a new statement tonight, saying we're seeing studies being conducted to understand the role of the ID Now test in ways they say it was not designed to be used. The NYU study results, they say, are not consistent with other studies and relied on a small sample size. Still, Scott, this is causing a lot of concern as this is the main test that we've heard being used uh, in the White House. I talked with Dr. Michael Osterholm about this, uh, an infectious diseases expert at the University of Minnesota, who said using this test to screen at the White House would be like giving squirt guns to the Secret Service. Scott. Meg, appreciate it. Well, bring back in Dr. Gottlieb. Dr. Gottlieb, it sounds like in some respects we're taking two steps forward and one step back when it comes to testing. I go back to what Dr. Bright said today about the outbreak itself. Would it, quote, get worse and be prolonged if we didn't quickly have a national testing strategy? Is this too much of a free-for-all? Well, I think we're going to have a lot of testing capacity heading into the fall and really heading into the summer. I think we'll be able to conduct millions of tests a week and probably heading towards 10 million. Brett Girard testified before Congress yesterday and said we'll be able to do 10 million tests a week heading into September. That's probably right, um, because that's that's 
owing to a lot of new technology that's going to come on the market, more point-of-care tests, more antigen-based tests where doctors can test right in their, their offices um, very inexpensively. I think what we need to do is make sure, one, uh, testing is accessible so we have sites that can offer testing. That's going to be the challenge, not the testing platforms. And two, that we're using the right testing platform for the right purpose. And so the machines like the Abbott machine, the Rapid machine that the White House is using, or the antigen-based tests like the one that was approved by Keitel over the weekend, um, we will have millions of those tests available. Those should really be used in a doctor's office because they're specific, meaning that if they say you have coronavirus, you do. But they're not uniformly sensitive, so they will tell some patients they don't have the virus when they do. Now, in a doctor's office, that's okay because the doctor's probably going to send off a confirmatory test anyway just to be sure if they get a negative result. So if you can rapidly screen out 85 or 90 percent of people and say they do have coronavirus, for the 10 percent where it says they don't, you might test them with something else. PCR is good for if you want more sensitivity and specificity, a more reliable test. Um, but you can't do it at scale. And in, in a manufacturing site or a workplace where you want to do things at scale, you're going to want to look at pooled testings, pooled samples, where you might take 50 employees and have them spit in a cup and test the whole cup at once. Um, and then if you get a positive, then you'll test each individual employee. For that, there's different platforms available, including next-generation sequencing, which is a good tool for that. I'm on the board of Illumina, a company that makes those tools. Um, but there's different technologies for different purposes we need to make sure we're fitting the right technology to the right purpose. Don't want to let you go before I get your comment on another uh, concerning story, certainly to everybody, especially parents. Now more than 100 cases of that new syndrome affecting children in New York. And now some disturbing new details, Dr. Gottlieb, about a new report out of Italy. What can you tell us? Well, there was a paper published in The Lancet that looked at um, 30 cases of what appears to be the same syndrome in Italy, um, about 20 of them uh, occurred just in the last um, you know, month or so, and then 10 occurred the five years prior. So it looks like um, you know, there's sort of a preponderance of these cases more recently, which is certainly suggestive that it's happening coincident with the coronavirus outbreak and suggested that there might be a relationship. We haven't been able to establish that there's a relationship, but the fact that we're seeing so many of these cases, and usually these are pretty rare conditions, Kawasaki's syndrome in particular, and the fact that the people who are presenting, the kids who are presenting, are either positive for coronavirus, active infection, or have antibodies indicating that they had prior infection, is certainly suggestive. And that's why everyone's so concerned that there's a relationship between these cases and the virus. But we haven't established that yet. Last question. A new study suggesting that speaking can produce droplets that stay in the air for at least eight minutes. That sounds much different than what we learned from the outset, or at least what we thought we knew about this virus from the beginning. Yeah, you know, it gets to the question of... Um, does this become airborne in the sense that small respiratory droplets that can stay suspended for longer periods of time uh, can transmit the infection? I mean, it's certainly on the continuum of possibility, but the, the thinking right now among most people is that it's classically respiratory droplets. You need to be in close proximity to someone for an extended period of time. And if you look at most of the studies where we've seen clusters of infection um, caused by a single individual, it was a situation where that individual was in close proximity to the infected person for an extended period of time. So a lot of the infections, for example, are happening in the home, where you have one sick individual infecting other people in the home. So you're always going to find these outlier cases and studies that demonstrate that this is more transmissible in certain circumstances. But I don't think that that's the overwhelming majority of the infection that's happening. We'll leave it there. We covered a lot. Dr. Gottlieb, thanks as always. We'll see you tomorrow night.
Thanks a lot. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb, CNBC contributor, the former head of the FDA. Here's what's coming up next. A new proposal from a top airline passengers' rights group about how the airlines should seat people to avoid scenes like this. When we come back, what's realistic and what's never going to happen? And all the seats at the bar have to be removed. A restaurant owner lets us inside as he rearranges his seating chart, menu, and everything else. First, photos from around the United States on the 137th day of the coronavirus crisis. the horizon for financial markets. At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. We have breaking news right now. Let's go right down to Washington, D.C., where our Kayla Tausche is standing by. Kayla? Scott, much of the House Democrats' $3 trillion stimulus bill that we'll see a vote tomorrow is a non-starter for Republicans in the White House. But I've learned that there is one piece of it that could see some support in the White House, and that is another round of direct stimulus checks to Americans. Two senior administration officials tell me that there is support in the White House at this moment for another round of stimulus checks. And to be sure, the Treasury Department's original blueprint did include a second check, but that did not get appropriated in the CARES Act back in March. To be sure, there are many conservatives like Kevin Hassett, Larry Kudlow, and Mark Meadows who do not believe that the U.S. can spend its way out of this crisis. So support is not uniform. But I'm told by these two senior administration officials that there is an acknowledgement privately that more money will need to get into the hands of Americans directly as unemployment remains high and business revenues are slow to return. The White House at this hour provides this statement from spokesman Judd Deere. He says, as President Trump has said, we are going to ensure that we take care of all Americans so that we emerge from this challenge healthy, stronger and with economic prosperity, which is why the White House is focused on pro-growth, middle class tax and regulatory relief. Scott, when these talks begin in earnest in just a couple of weeks, this could be something that is on the minds of many Americans and could be on the negotiating table with support at this moment for another round of stimulus checks from the White House. And as we know now, Kayla, we're still planning on a vote in the House tomorrow. That is the plan uh, as for now. But, Scott, it's worth noting this is dead on arrival in the Senate. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said that he does not believe that anything near a blank check is what we're going to see this time around, at least in his chamber. I appreciate that very much. Kayla, thank you very much for your breaking news tonight. The National Association of Airline Passengers, meantime, petitioning the FAA and Department of Transportation this evening to force airlines to limit capacity to prevent the spread of the virus. They want flights to be no more than half full. Seating should be arranged for safe social distancing, they say. They want airlines to give passengers and crew protective gear as well. And they're also calling for cleaning standards. A key member of Congress also weighing in on the path forward for the airlines. 
Let's get to Phil LeBeau with more on what is possible and what is not. Phil? Scott, we're talking about Representative Peter DeFazio, and he's an important person in Congress because he heads the House Transportation Committee. So when he speaks, the airlines listen, and today he is speaking loudly about the fact that he thinks these uh, airplanes that are flying right now, we've seen these pictures, should not be as full as, as some of them have been. In the letter he sent to the Airlines for America, that's the trade group that oversees the uh, airline industry, he writes, who among the CEOs of A4A carriers would want a member of their own family to be assigned to a middle seat between two potentially contagious passengers in the middle of a global pandemic? These are some of the images we've seen over the last several days especially on high-traffic routes, let's say from New York to San Francisco. I heard from a friend flying from Dallas to Chicago last night. He was outraged at how many people were on his flight. As the airlines have dropped flights from their schedule, they have consolidated when people are flying in particular routes, and those planes have been many times 70 75% full. Some people are saying they're completely full. The problem is this. The U.S. passenger levels right now, are still down 93%. So the airlines are not making any money at all. And the few times that they can fill up a plane so that it is a, quote, profitable flight, that's what they're doing. On average, however, the average number of passengers on a plane right now is about 17. And the problem is this. You've got too many planes and too much staff for the airlines. Take a look at Delta. Today it said it's going to be retiring all of the Boeing 777 planes that they fly. Those are primarily on their international routes. They're also telling their pilots they have 14,000 of them. They have 7,000 too many for the schedule that they are setting for the fall. Scott, Peter DeFazio would love to see the airlines make sure that the middle seat is always unoccupied and limit the number of people on a plane to no more than two-thirds of the seats. If that were to be the case, 100% across the board, the airlines would not make money. Phil, uh, I'm somewhat sympathetic, uh, you know, uh, many are, to the plight of the airlines right now. It just seems completely unacceptable, some of those photos coming out of airlines that are packed and people are clearly uncomfortable. There's not social distancing uh, at all. It's just making people really uncomfortable. And that's the point of Representative DeFazio. And that's why he's saying, at a minimum, you need to have the middle seat empty. So the question then becomes... How do the airlines turn a profit? Well, if you're going to keep that middle seat empty, and Representative DeFazio says, go ahead and charge more for an airfare ticket, for a plane ticket. You know how much more you'd have to charge, Scott? Anywhere between 40, 50, and 60 percent. So now the, the fare that might be $180 turns into $300. And that has the impact of tell, making people say, do I really want to take this flight? Nah, maybe not right now. And that's the last thing the airlines need right now. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what, though. It, you know, it could also... These sorts of pictures that we're looking at right now could backfire on the airlines in and of itself, Phil, in that people who are seeing this right now are going to say, you know, I was thinking about taking a flight, but now I'm not if that's what the airlines are doing. So they're missing out on the money anyway if people see these photos and don't fly. Absolutely. It's all about comfort level. And right now, very, very few people feel comfortable flying in the U.S. Yeah, some of these planes, though, are packed. The photos uh don't lie. Phil, appreciate it very much. Thank you. That's Phil LeBeau tonight. Here's what else is coming up on this CNBC special report. This two table, one and two, have to go. One restaurant owner rearranging seats for reopening shows us how he's doing it. 
Plus, a first look at what your office will look like when you go back. A doctor now making arrangements for offices big and small shows us his strategy. We're back in two minutes. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Rearranging America from offices. We need to be six feet apart. To restaurants, what it will all look like. It's the new path forward for America. This CNBC special report continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. Welcome back. Let's give you another check of futures at this hour after today's Wall Street rally, pretty good turnaround on the street today, and we're turning around the futures as well, albeit slightly. We are in the green, though, across the board. As for today, those same green arrows, the Dow rising 377 points up for the first time this week. The strongest sector today had to be financials. Big gains for American Express, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs, all for a change helping the Dow. Well, when restaurants open for sit-down service, we're going to see big changes, of course. Tonight, what one owner is doing to get ready for that. It's a scene playing out behind closed doors at thousands of America's restaurants. Here's Andrea Day. Armed with an infrared temperature gun, Chef Rafaele Ronca is getting ready for the day he can do business again. When somebody gets into the door, we got to take their temperature. Make sure that they don't have a fever, otherwise they're not allowed into your business. The chef's two New York restaurants shut down to diners back in March. This one is located in Westchester County, one of the state's earliest hotspots. And he's okay. He can work in 97.2. It's all part of the new protocol, guidelines for reopening after COVID-19, a document he just received from his town's Chamber of Commerce. It's all designed to help virus-proof every inch of his 3,000-square-foot eatery. This is our old menu that every day we used to clean, sanitize, make sure they were nice and presentable. Now, throw away. This is our new menu, just white paper that once, you know, somebody touches it, a client touches it, it's just tossed out in the garbage. So this one used to be our check presenter. No more because it's plastic. You cannot have it. This is the new way of presenting a check. Here you go. All staff have to wear masks while they're working. When we reopen to public, all the seats at the bar have to be removed. 14 bar stools get carried away. The protocol says that we need to be six feet apart. This table has to move forward. The restaurant's tables are also getting the COVID treatment. This two table, one and two, have to go. Seeing it shrinking down by chairs and numbers of tables, it's quite depressing. It just hurts your heart. We need to do all these changes to make sure 
that our clients come out and feel safe. In the end, Chef Raffaelli carries away 11 of the 19 tables, and more than half the chairs are gone. Total seats on the front of the restaurants were about 90 seats. Now we are at 41. And this new normal will be tough on the business. With all the expenses that we have, we would have to we would have to do about 200 people a day. So you have to turn this four times, which it's almost impossible to see because everybody wants to eat between 6:30 and 8:30. The numbers are stacked against him, but he says he's ready for the challenge. This is our new business plan. We're going to give it 110 percent to make sure that we survive and see the light on the other side of the tunnel. We have only one choice, to succeed. We're rooting for you, Chef. I'm Andrea Day, CNBC. Andrea, thank you. We certainly are rooting for everybody. So that's the restaurant side of the story. Now to a doctor who is rearranging office space. Dr. Robert Quigley is the senior vice president and regional manager for the Americas at International SOS. It's a company that provides medical consultations and services to workplaces. Dr. Quigley, good to have you on our program tonight. We actually have blueprints of an office space from before and sort of after an ongoing project that you're working on. I'm going to put those on the screen. I'd like you to talk us through what the new office, so to speak, is going to look like on the other side of this. Certainly. And this office is clearly representative of many offices across America right now. And the request that we are getting at International SOS from organizations in every sector is, what do we do? How do we open up? And we always begin by saying, look, it's, it's going to be like a dimmer on a light switch. It's not going to be an on-off. And what you see on the screen in front of you is a before and after appearance of a basic layout that we have proposed to mitigate against transmission of the coronavirus in the new office. But that is just a static picture. You have to understand that there will be many protocols and procedures that are shared between us and our clients with regards to practices. And what we've done is we've broken down the project, if you like, for all of our clients into employees, infrastructure, and then guest visitors or vendors. And we address each of those groups of people, all of whom are potentially at risk uh, as carriers. If you look at the screen in the after appearance, you can see how we encourage a single point of entry represented by POE on the screen. When one walks through that single point of entry, there's a screening station, which may or may not be manned by a healthcare professional, typically not. What we do suggest is that the organization elects a hygiene officer who is at least up to speed on what are the appropriate questions that should be asked in the event the individual comes in and they have a fever. We also have a room near that point of entry, which we call the red zone. And that's a room where one would be delegated if one had a fever. And from there, we have connected medical emergency response plans Mm -hmm. for that individual to be uh, either assisted out of the workplace or... um, going through EMS. What, what, I, what I notice from, from looking at these pictures, it, it appears to me is that the office space itself is the same size. We just have a fewer number of, of people within that space. As we have been thinking about what the office itself would look like in the future and whether companies would actually be taking smaller footprints in a commercial building, this suggests otherwise. Well, it does and it doesn't. If you look at it closely, you can see that what we've done is we've tried to maintain that fundamental principle of the social distancing. 
So we've separated what might be a quadrangular desk arrangement down to a double. Or if you have a desk arrangement that are long tables and chairs, we alternate uh, seats. And we have uh, uh, been able to do that already in a variety of places. And that seems to work very well. So we don't necessarily have to cut down on the topographic square footage as much as we have to carve out pathways uh, and opportunities where one is not going to breach the basic uh, two meters, six foot social distancing principle, which we know is so fundamental, obviously, in the context of universal precautions, wearing a mask and washing one's hands and having sanitizers, which we have located all over that particular blueprint in front of you. Interesting work ahead uh, for all of us as we think about this. Dr. Quigley, we appreciate your time so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. We appreciate you joining us tonight. Here's what's next on this CNBC special report. He's the man behind one of the world's most iconic clothing brands. Joseph Aboud is with us next on the future of retail. Before the break, images from around the world on the 137th day of the global pandemic. Welcome back. According to the National Retail Federation, the retail sector employs 29 million Americans, but the $2.5 trillion fashion industry is at a dangerous crossroads. With us tonight is the fashion icon Joseph Abood. He is the founder of JA Apparel. Joseph, welcome to our program. It's nice to see you. You too, Scott. Thanks for having me. You've seen so much of, of retail over the years. How would you characterize tonight the trouble that that industry is in? Well, it's unprecedented, really. Uh, we've been through recessions, but clearly there's never been, <clears throat> excuse me, a health issue uh, on the other side of it. So the fashion industry isn't quite sure how it's going to reinvent itself. But for sure, fashion is always creative and we'll find a way to get through it. Do you worry that we're going to see more bankruptcies? We're just coming off of a filing by Neiman Marcus about a week ago, yeah. Barney's here in New York uh, some months ago, Nordstrom closing a bunch, of, a bunch of its stores. How bad do you think it gets? Well, I think the companies that were struggling financially before uh, the crisis are going to struggle even more. And uh, it's, it's unfortunate. It's survival of the fittest. And uh, a lot of the retailers are consolidating, where you may see a company like Hudson Bay, owners of Saks Fifth Avenue, acquire parts of Neiman Marcus. So I think we'll see less stores. There are 3.6 million retail stores uh, in all price points across this country. So I think we are overstored. And I think uh, the relevance now is not about price. That's a great myth that's been perpetrated on the retail industry. It's about value, quality, storytelling and relevance for retailers, especially with the new generations, with the, with the millennials and certainly Gen Z right behind it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking of so many different issues facing the industry. Sure. Uh, working at home, for example, having the obvious impact of uh, who needs to go out and buy a suit, either male <laughs> right. or, or, or female. How, how should we be thinking that, of right. that? And 
when you do go out, how can you try anything on in the age of COVID-19? That's right. And all of those questions are unanswered. Everybody is trying to be innovative about how we fit men to suits. Now, think about it. Think about that intimate relationship of a guy coming up and trying a jacket on you or taking measurements. That's uncomfortable for the moment. So we don't have the answers for that. And virtual fittings and online fittings don't really work. So I think what's going to happen with retail is that people are going to look for more intimate settings to shop. Smaller retail environments where there's more space, where people are more comfortable and they're familiar with the owners. So it's a new paradigm for us. And I think the great part of our industry is what we do find a way. We will find a way to get through this. But there are a lot of unanswered questions. I was going to ask you if it's it, this is all bad for the mom and pop retailer. But what you just yeah. said actually had me thinking that maybe in this new environment where it's more personalized, as That's you right. just suggested, they could actually do okay? I think the greatest creativity we have is with the small shops, where you find new product, new ideas, the service that people really love to have. So I'm hoping that there will be this, uh, uh, this growth of the small specialty store where service and quality really become important and that price is not the only driving factor. The other piece too, Scott, is that I think people will start to look at healing fabrics like pure cashmere, pure wool, pure linen, pure cotton. It's not the time for sensationalist fashion. It's, it, fashion always finds a way. It's a mirror of society. And, and we have to look inward now. And I think it's dressing for the inside, literally and figuratively, not for the outside. Interesting thought there. And, and finally, a thought from you on something that was once near and dear to your heart and your business. Yes. Can you ever hold a fashion show again? Well, you know, that's really interesting. We both know the energy and excitement of a fashion show. Being in proximity, close proximity to so many people, the paparazzi, cameras, energy models. I don't know. I think virtual fashion shows will happen, but I don't think in the near future we're going to see that excitement, at least uh, on the runway. We may see it on the screen, but not on the runway, but we lose some energy from that. Yeah. That's uh, that's sad to hear. Fashion icon Joseph Abood, we appreciate your time. We wish you well. Thank you, Scott. Stay well. All right. You as well. All right. We do have more breaking news tonight right now. Let's get back to Kayla Tausche. Kayla. Scott, the Trump administration has drafted an executive order that would mandate essential drugs be produced here in the U.S., according to two sources familiar with the matter, one of whom says this executive order could be released as soon as tomorrow, but is awaiting the president's sign-off. This comes amid multiple supply chain shortages, amid the havoc that has been wreaked by the coronavirus crisis. The administration has multiple efforts underway to try to move supply chains to the U.S. to try to avoid those supply chain shortages in the future. Now, Bloomberg News, which was first to report this news, notes that there would be exceptions if the U.S. production isn't in the public interest or if it would raise prices of those drugs by more than 25 percent. One of my sources, Scott, says that this order would direct HHS to study the supply chains, identify weaknesses, and in 90 days, deliver a report to the president. Scott? Kayla, appreciate it. We'll follow that tomorrow. Our nightly salute to restaurants is next. Our nightly salute to restaurants from Alaska to New York. Thanks for being with us. Shark Tank is coming up next. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.